Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. <laughs> Thanks for leaving that one. Wait, in which the one? Background there. We don't it's have to. You're just setting the torch for the fans. Oh, man. I, have I was muted. Of... Can nope. you say it again? Oh, I'm not. Uh, nope. That's not how being muted works. But you know. No, because then you're introducing the film and you can't do that. So <laughs> indeed, oh, indeed. Got oh, him. Uh, he, he got me on my own rules. Um, I uh, I've, I've become more of a fan of uh, just just giving us cold intros and making making the thing a little bit more friendly. I think we need a more of a personable appearance. I think we're too high minded, too haughty on our podcast. So um, I welcome everybody to listening, uh, and thank you so much for tuning in to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trial and Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trial of Podcast. You can find the Trial and at Trial and Cinema. You can find me. My name is Jason Daphnis. I help make this podcast. Uh, sorry, I didn't do it right, but I can't hold lengthy conversations with family relatives during work hours. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Hey, I'm not the one on trial here. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. We've all got clean records. Me, especially I'm Harry Mack. And you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name is Aaron. And I, I, I personally want to thank all of the, uh, hosts of the trial of podcast for having me on to talk about this film which is, as you all know, about my efforts uh, to get an alimony waiver in the New Jersey court system. Thank you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RV, please. Uh, again, go to trilon.org for tickets and showings and other cool information about things going on at the Trilon, including the Cult Film Collective Club, the Trilon Club, a number of ways to support the Trilon and local independent cinema here in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities. Uh, I will let Aaron introduce the movie because this is not part of a series. It is part of other programming at the Trilon. A recent uh, renovation or restoration of this film is making the rounds. Um, it is not aligned with the Borgnine or the Peckinpah series that we'll be covering over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but make sure to check out the trial on schedule for anything else you want to see, including a movie like this, which I think should be playing by the time that you hear this episode. Um, so check it out. Uh, but I'll let Aaron actually tell us what it's about. Yes, we are discussing the trial 1962 film directed by Orson Welles based on the Franz Kafka, uh, posthumous novel, uh, 1925 novel of the same name. Uh, the film follows a promising young, uh, bank worker, uh, known as Joseph K played by Anthony Perkins, uh, who is awoken one day by several officers of the law who enter his apartment to notify him that he is under arrest for a crime, the details of which Joseph K. is never told. Uh, Wells directed the adaptation uh, after being approached by European producer Alexander Salkind, um, who basically gave him free reign to direct an adaptation of any work in the public domain, uh, which... Turns out the trial was not, and they had to secure the rights for it, but that was basically kind of the pitch, saying that, hey, I'll give you financing, I'll give you complete creative control, do whatever you want, and this was kind of uh, the, the outcome. Uh, the film was very unsuccessful uh, on release, kind of critically and commercially, um, it, but I think in recent years has uh, become to kind of be seen in a, a bit of a better light, um, often known specifically for a few things, but uh, I think most notably it's kind of intricate set design and also it's kind of very stark black and white cinematography. Uh, that's all I got. 
you know, quick summary there. It's also yeah. worth noting that uh, in, a, in a way that is extremely thematically resonant, uh, Orson Welles has always called this his best film. I think he said, quote, say what you want, but this is the best movie I've ever made. <laughs> so, uh, again, very much sort of um, internalizing yes. the point of his own film there, but uh, also a very Orson Welles maneuver in my mind. Believe the man. Also a very it, it Orson Welles maneuver to, to stunt cast himself. Uh, is in the most like pivotal role in the film. Yeah, I've yeah, had yeah. enough of. Someone needs to take Mr. Wells down a peg for that shit. Because every I, film, he's like, yeah. ah, let me just be the most important guy who shows. Let me up. be the the most important guy who spends most yes. of his time on a bed lounging around. Could I play that guy, please? Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, well, let's which, let's start the conversation yeah. there. It's, it sounds like it's a pretty rich. Uh, what did, what did we think of the character of the the ad, advi- What was the word? Advisor? The advocate advocate i'm sorry uh positioned as an an antagonist in this film yeah very much so i haven't read the book maybe this is where we crack open that for aaron but um i haven't read the book upon which this is based the the novel i uh i I understand that the character is sort of a um bureaucratic sort of like deadline pushing like more of a trivial like trivializer than an act outright like antagonist as this movie portrays the character is that is that like accurate aaron um, it does kind of weirdly tie into the joke I was just making a bit ago about Wells kind of, uh, puffing himself up with, with film roles. Cause like it, it, uh-huh. um, like overall, this is a, with like one or two exceptions that are maybe kind of larger, but are, are like not numerous. I think this is generally a pretty faithful adaptation. Um, there are differences that like you could argue are quite large, but I think overall, if you just like take a look at it on paper. This is a pretty direct adaptation of the book. Um, that being said, the the character of the advocate is, unless I'm missing something, is not referred to that in the book. Maybe it's like a translation thing. Um, it is, the the character that Wells plays is like the lawyer that uh, Kay like, goes to with his uncle, um, who like is like supposedly going to defend him, but it kind of ends up going nowhere as the, this long kind of drawn out process. Um, Wells kind of exaggerates the the importance of that character a bit by having him kind of show up as kind of the, I guess, a slight antagonist uh, at the very end uh, of the movie. That is not something that character does. That is not, I don't know, it, seem, it seems like kind of a knowing thing that Wells is doing as like the director yeah. of the film uh, and also the person, you know, heavily involved in adapting it. And it seems like a, a conscious effort to make that character bigger. You can yeah. call that pretentious i guess i don't necessarily think so but i i um, guess i guess it had a weird effect on me like obviously the whole self-aggrandizing thing that wells tended to do that we all we all know and love him for but um the like i think what what that that move does making that character more central more important and more like directly antagonistic i would call him pretty antagonistic from the moment we meet him more or less you know that like the uh, k is sort of on a journey of sorts to try and prove his innocence or to at least find out what he's accused of and this character is like just stone, stonewalling he's, he's not clearly not taking the case seriously he's uh delaying he's referring him to people who end up being complete dead ends and i wonder to what end that is i mean harry you were saying like very in singing with the with the point of the movie and the point of the story uh wells is this big like important character in the movie and he calls it his own like best movie um what like to what end is that character made much more important in or i won't say important but much more of a figure much much more like directly um in like opposition to the main character than in the book uh and like does that what does that really do to the overall like narrative there if such as it is 
Sure. Well, I'll I'll begin with my standard disclaimer that I'm kind of talking out my ass because I haven't read the book either, which is kind of weird. I'm a big Kafka fan. I've read a lot of his work, but I I haven't. Okay, thank you. Um, sorry, I'm so I, late I on it. I'm so sorry. Um, I uh, I haven't read this one. Um, so I, I'm not sure exactly how to relate the advocate back. Um, I, what I would say is that I think it works for me in the context of this adaptation because um, the advocate is kind of a stand-in for the like vampiric power dynamic that all people in this movie sort of unknowingly or not are exerting on each other where uh, all of these people are really desperate to leverage power over one another uh, specifically the power to judge one another um, and the advocate sort of sets up this Byzantine process by which he is allowed to maintain um, a sort of vague but universal authority over his clients that is never ending. And he derives like this absolute power from that and is sort of like weaving a web for, uh, for everyone who comes into contact with him where he can sort of like be their salvation, but without actually being salvation, right? Because he can't provide such a thing um, and wouldn't even know where to start. But like that allows him to have this, this position like the guard in the um, parable that he tells Kay at the end of the story and at the beginning of the story where he is allowed to like leverage this absolute power as the gatekeeper to everything that Kay wants. Right. Um, And so long as, as Kay sort of like subconsciously or, or consciously, or even sort of like against his will buys into that system, he is um, giving the the advocate that power over him and essentially okay. sort of allowing the advocate to define him um, on his terms. At least that's what I took away. What did you think about that, Aaron? Um, I think you're, you're largely correct. I think this is like the biggest, like th- this element of the film. And then I'd say there's like, there's three areas in which Wells kind of departs from the, the original text. And I, I think that, Two of those areas are kind of justified, and one feels very odd. The one that the one that I don't understand is is how Joseph K dies at the end of this. I don't understand why that was changed. Uh, we can get into that later, maybe. Um, but the the other two elements are um, both kind of tied together, and that it, it feels like Wells is taking a much more kind of direct approach to the themes of the work, um, or is at least kind of inputting in his own kind of take on the morality at play here by kind of inserting himself as this character who acts as this kind of adversary, uh, to, to the main character, uh, to Kay. Um, and I think that it is intentional. And I think I like kind of buy into what he's doing a little bit, but I, I don't know if I like agree with it as a, an artistic choice overall. And that I, I think that like the very best moment in this book is, uh, the conversation, uh, in the book is, conversation that Kay has with the priest, which happens very briefly um, at the end of the movie, um, but it's much more drawn out. And that is where the kind of the parable about the the man kind of waiting outside of the, the gate for his entire life and then kind of dying. That is where that originally is in the book, like right at the end of the book. Um, and there's a very long, like multiple page long discussion between Kay and the priest about the morality of that story in which um, you know, Kay very, very quickly says, like, this this man was deceived by the guard, by the system. Like, he came here in this hope of kind of having this confrontation with the law, and that was, like, purposefully denied of him. And the priest kind of, I think, very persuasively pre- presents other arguments uh, or other interpretations 
of like the role that this guard played, right? As someone who is like protecting uh, the man who came up to the gate and from giving him what other... he wants, right? Essentially, yes. Uh, uh, well, there's there's like five or six different turns. It like it really bounces off and like really kind of muddles what is it, first is seen as like this clear deception, right? Um, and it it feels like that is my favorite moment in the book, and it feels like a lot of that is removed by having there being one character who does kind of stand in is the bad guy. And that I think like the the purpose here for me, or the thing that I'm really attached to is that like all of these characters are, they do bad things, right. But they are kind of justifiable in a certain way. And that there is this larger kind of unseen system that like supports this bureaucracy that is like really kind of the culprit here. And like the removal or the inability to ever like confront that directly is like the thing that like, is actually the problem here. So I kind of like, I'm kind of annoyed that Wells does make that decision to make it this, this one person, even though that's still, we are still under with the understanding that there is this larger court system behind him, but it does kind of remove that burden slightly. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm no, I'm really glad we're getting there because that was my initial takeaway from this as well, especially because like Kafka is like the guy who who created the sort of like absurdity of bureaucratic systems and how inhuman they can be. Like Kafka-esque is the term, right, that everybody knows that's from I think it's specifically from this book, right? Like people are usually referring to specifically the trial when they're calling something Yes. Yeah. Uh, And I think it's like it's so quintessentially Orson Welles like almost like doing a piss take on the idea of Kafka to be like, well, but what if, what if there was a guy who stood in like a, like a single <laughs> antagonist who stood in for all of these ideas instead of this sort of like universal sort of uh, overarching system of power. Um, I think, I think again, it, it sort of works for me because I think that the, the character Orson Welles is playing is so obviously a stand in for a larger system that is still operating. Right. Like I think, he is in in some way kind of doing what all of the characters in this movie are trying to do, which is sort of like try to uh, at once secure the power to judge and um, be judged favorably. Uh, they're all sort of desperate for that, right? And there's like a real power struggle occurring throughout that um, process. And I think that um, by sort of standing over this in this mysterious godlike way, um, the advocate can kind of represent the system while remaining a character. Um, though I am very sympathetic to the idea that like, I don't know, maybe maybe Orson Welles felt like he couldn't do the systemic thing justice. And so he had to insert a protagonist or maybe he's just a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Who knows? <laughs> I, I like I, th- I think there is like classically centrist here, like an answer right in the middle of all three of those things. I this isn't so much like a new revelation as it is just an observation about the whole situation. But like, I think there's a bit of a necessity in the film format to position that character as like emblematic of the system because like Aaron was saying I like that you brought up that a lot of the other characters who do stand between Joseph K and like his search for answers so to speak uh distracted though he gets on it is like they're somewhat justifiable in their roles like the the mistress of the advocate um she's not really there to help him anyway uh the like even his fellow uh you know uh, a common man is also being persecuted by the state there are a number of uh, other side characters like uh Dante's Inferno style 
Kyle who just sort of like shepherd him forward without providing any direction or answers. Um, and like you kind of understand based on the power structures that are at play here that nobody there was really equipped to help him in general. Uh, and I think the fact that the advocate is like somebody who is supposed to be helping him, somebody who is like his whole role is as literally attorney uh, lawyer for Joseph K. And he is not I guess the fact in the, I'm assuming that in the book, he's just more of a roadblock than he is a direct competition or antagonist. And I think positioning him direct more directly as like the mustache twirling shitty old man laying in bed uh, character, I think makes it like, it just brings that forward a little bit more clearly in a movie where there's such, I do want to get to like just the bland monotony that I mean, objectively that this movie like gets to and specifically it's middle third where it's just repeated examples and vignettes of people not helping him and him like sort of focusing on it and not and not focusing on it, whether that's good or bad is not the judgment I'm making. It's it, it is to a, to a specific end pointless. But I think amid that monotony, amid that sea of people who are uh, not equipped to and just not helping him and sort of the, the various diversions that the plot takes. I think having this one central character that can stand in as like, this is the picture of the system. Maybe it loses the point a little bit of the story as written uh, by, by Kafka, but as like when portrayed on the screen, I think there's a bit of a necessity to that. And I wonder if Wells wasn't pulled to it as like, I am a big shitty old man who just lays in bed all day. I will, I will be this character. I will stand in as this character who is a stand in for an idea I want to bring forward more i guess again not a, not a new thought just a rough observation yeah i i will say that my like very general galaxy brain take about like that decision in general and i think a lot of the ways in which uh wells directs this film um and that like th this is like there are like 80% of the lines of this thing are like directly from the book. So like, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it like it's this massive shift, but like there is like a very distinct tonal difference, I think between the book and like what Wells is doing here that is, is much more directed. Um, the ways in which like K is like shot in like the environments, these very like geometrically harsh, like imposing environments, the way that like shadows fall across rooms and buildings and whatnot. It, it feels like Wells is, is quite angry here. Um, and my, my like take here is that like this, this book like published in 1925 written before that uh, it was published after Kafka's death, like, is is one of the more I think prescient books ever written in terms of like kind of anticipating uh, the rest of the 20th century, um, and that it is impossible. Although as a a Jew living in Germany, it's like it's it is you know he certainly felt a lot of those tensions. Um, it is impossible for Kafka to know about stuff like World War II or the Cold War or like the entrenchment of uh, capitalism as as like a larger economic model and like clashes with, you know, socialism, communism. Um, but it feels like, here's my take, I think Wells in 62 cannot, like, ignore what this book kind of prophesized in a lot of ways. And that I think that is, like, the reason for a lot of the more kind of direct, like, even angry aspects of this movie that are purposefully murkier in the book. Great that's, point, like, great that's point. my big take here, I think, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a pretty good take. And it, I mean, it makes sense even with, I think Orson Welles being the sort of, uh, the egomaniac that he is, um, uh, punched, lightly punching him on the shoulder. This old guy, this big egoist over here, um, egotistical guy, but like for him to come into his own movie and sort of anchor the, uh, uh, 
physical manifestation of all of these like very um, structural societal oppressive forces. Like it makes sense. And it is as with me being not uh, someone who's not particularly experienced with not just the story, but um, Kafka as a whole, like I was trying to make sense of like what, why, why is this the movie the way that it is? Why, like the things, this environment, the things that I'm looking at, why are they the way that they are? Um, and I kept, I came around to, or uh, it is still very much a working reading, even after like so many days later of this, not just like, it's a, a world, it's dreamlike, it's illogical. It's not, it's like an ego fueled daydream of not just like any person in particular, but Joseph K specifically um, there like between the lines. I think that's, I don't know, that's something that um, I, I don't know. I like, I couldn't help but think about um, the, the sort of, despite him being a gigantic weirdo, him like talking to having to your point, Jason, the same sorts of conversations with like a lot of like fascinating and vibrant characters, him, um, having so much success talking uh, with women, despite him being a huge creep uh, and not very like socially savvy. Um, and uh, that's right, Paul. Um, yeah. And the, the sort of things in the, in the margins of like the simultaneous um, like illusion of freedom and like illusion of punishment sometimes like it's, and it, I thought it was like sort of funny that throughout, you know, if this is his, uh, his own daydream that he's conjuring himself. The fact that like, there's all this um, capitalistic pressure being put in, like we cannot escape from those things, even in our wildest daydreams where we're like having this, this great life. We're just edgy enough to have been accused of a crime, but like not ed edgy enough to have that crime particularly defined. I don't know. There's a lot of weird things um, going on in the background that I was pretty well captivated by. And, and I don't know. Yeah. The, the advocate being the, the, the face of that all. Um, and I guess I also came away with like mixed feelings about, but, and the other thing that made it sort of hard to reconcile is that parable of like, um, when it comes to our own imagination, is there, is there some guard who's unable or unwilling to let us in even after an eternity, an entire lifetime of waiting? Like, are there certain limits to our imagination? These sort of, um, societal structural blocks that have been put in, all of that is still like kicking in my head, but I don't, there is, I don't know, a, a, a lot of good shit there to, to feast on. I, I think that's the scholarly way of putting it. There's a, there's a lot of good shit something like that <laughs> um man that's a really good point cody i want to respond to that first like i think that um evaluating this movie as like a post-world war ii like uh like mid cold war kind of pre-cold war red scare. like yes. red, yeah red scare update to the uh Kafka's novel is like exactly right. And I think it's a really good point. Um, I just had like two anecdotes. Literally, it's it, it's two sort of like perfect not to bring up like in the five minutes or whatever between when I finished watching this movie and we started recording, I was just on Instagram and I happened to see in an interview with Orson Welles where he talked about meeting Hitler. Um, he was like on a talk show or whatever. And he was like, yeah, uh, I met Hitler and I literally don't remember it because he made no impression on me. There was, there was <laughs> nobody there. And like he... <laughs> And yeah, it's like, it's funny, but like, that is, that it was a very important story for Orson Welles, right? He was like, actually like, no, like, it's important that you know that like, he he was, he was saying this because the, uh, the host was laughing and he was like, but no, like, there really wasn't anything there until you sort of like get 500 people saying, Sig Hail, Hail Hitler. Hitler was not like this, he was a void, right? And I like, I think comparing that story to this and, and thinking about the ways in which Orson Welles is angry about how 
people are ceding power to systems, right? Through their own sort of like um, I psychological persecution complex or their own sort of senses of inadequacy or just the very human fear that we're not doing something right. The ways in which um, we sort of end up giving up our power to make um, judgments or to make like determinations to these systems that don't have our best interests at heart, because at least that like gives us something to understand the world by, right? Like I think that uh, the the parable of the law at the beginning is really good, right? Because it's like like the priest says in in Aaron's retelling, it's like this guy is like, well, he was deceived and like he wasted his life, but it was like, no, that guy was afraid to be alive, right? He he wanted to be outside that door and even being there, never able to get in, at least gave him a hierarchy that he could understand himself within. And all of these systems, right? These systems that make us nothing, that make us workers, that make us, you know, like slaves, um, to them, they are providing a structure by which we can understand, um, life and death and what it is to be human. And I think that the, the point here, or one of the big points is my own galaxy brained opinion is that like, I think that it's it's frightening and how human and understandable the impulse is to subliminate your own ability to sort of existentially self-determine in the face of those systems are and the dangers in doing that right because you can you can allow yourself to be existentially reduced into what the system wants you to be um and you yourself are doing it right but you're doing it out of fear and out of this sort of like um, abdication of responsibility um, for your own determination. It's, I like that you brought up, like, it's it's not just that the systems that it's portraying through Wells' character, through, like, all of the other various guides and um, advocates on the way, uh, is, like, not just that those systems permanent, you know, from World War II through the Red Scare and beyond, uh, are like not just that they're designed, excuse me, they're, they're not working in the best interests of people like Joseph K, people like you and me, et cetera, people without like strong leading uh, political world changing power. It's that they're actively designed against the interests of the to Like one of the things that I noticed about like my first note about this movie is it's just, this is just fucked up because I can't understand what anybody's saying at any given time. Every single thing, every single fact that is established is then immediately questioned with the next line or maybe in the same line as that. Just functionally, this movie moves in such a way as to completely obfuscate like meaning and surety of the words that are coming out of people's mouths. And sometimes just having people talk over one another. I did not full disclosure, see this at the trial on, but I saw a recently, uh, a fairly decently restored version of this. And even at that, even with the audio design and excuse me, uh, the audio being cleaned up a little bit and some of the more you know, visually, it's a little bit cleaner to watch still incredibly difficult to watch is to really like follow the moment to moment in the first third, we'll say until we start to like iron out where the character's going and who he's supposed to meet next and sort of the purpose of each of those characters. Uh, I think it starts intentionally in that way to, to like exemplify that uh, the, 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 the system is not um, just, you know, not helpful that it is actively like, I think the word that he corrects one of the investigators on is abstruse. Uh, literally it's, it's like he, he, he gets very particular about word choice and in a scene when he's being, uh, when he should be probably more focused on what he's actually being, um, uh, uh, you know, conf or, uh, uh, accused of doing of, of, of what he's under arrest for he's correcting them on ovular and on abstruse and all this and it's like this is what 
it's designed to do is to sort of seed distrust and create um, doubt and and obfuscate meaning of basic known facts. Like I deserve the right to know why what I'm being accused oh, of. Or man. like a dentist used to live in this apartment and all these other facts just flying in together that just crash and explode and like it completely make it a totally meaningless first act except to get out with the point like he's been accused and you don't know if what literally just that that is that set the scene for me like watching this whole movie was how much of this is supposed to be like information that i retain and how much of it is just stuff that is thrown at me to exemplify how directly confusing how archaic how draconian how uh, like any form any system of of uh, legal proceeding any system of government is not intended to like be approachable is not intended to be um like working in the best interests of anyone it is it designed to capture to withhold to um to obfuscate meaning I, I don't know it's it it's more like a note on the form of the movie and how it like sort of plays against some of those ideas that, that harry's bringing up uh then it is like an, a completely original thought about the movie but i that's what i left like the first act with was okay so the specific dialogue the words that people are saying are far less important than how we're actually moving in sort of the main quote-unquote narrative beats of the movie end up being yeah, well, you you get like this idea that Kay is like, like caught in like a Venus flytrap or like a like quicksand or something, and that like the more he like struggles against it, the the more he's just kind of brought further into it, right? Yeah, yeah. and that there, there is a there's a bit in the book that I think may have like a line that carried through to the film where the reason that he goes to like dismiss the lawyer at the end is he he very distinctly says like before I like hired your services and started like consulting with you. I just didn't think about the trial and it like it was still there, but it, it wasn't something that like permeated every aspect of my life. But like the more I try and fight against it, the more it's just like every waking moment is in meetings trying to get this sorted out or like filling out paperwork or like talking to people or having them trail me. And there's like this this kind of um, it's like a, a very dumb thing to say, but like it's kind of the only way to win is like just to not play the game. Right. And that like, the the reason that this bureaucracy works is because everybody in the society kind of feels subconsciously guilty at all times. And that like, as soon as there's this like general assumption of, of guilt uh, for the way that you're living, for the possibility that you may have done something wrong in the past, that there's like, there's kind of no way out of it. Right. And that, that maybe the only hope that someone like Kate may have had would have just to kind of basically ignored everything but of mm -hmm. course like the, the other like brilliant part of case character is that like he is i think we are very sympathetic towards him but we also very clearly find him kind of annoying and that he makes a lot of decisions yeah. where it's like <laughs> yeah maybe you just shouldn't have done that thing maybe you should stop trying to like smooch every woman that you come across you know what i mean like maybe these are <laughs> yes, Return of the Mac is him every time he, he sees a woman. <laughs> he lays <laughs> in, in a bed film. of books with a beautiful German woman. It's, it's, there is like, not to be like, oh, yeah, he deserves to get fucking killed at the end, but there is an active, there's like an aspect of this where it's like every single thing he does just kind of, um, makes it worse for him in a way that, that feels like very inspirational for, a lot of uh, like dark comedies that would follow this film, specifically a lot of ones surrounding like uh, like masculinity and like kind of, you know, pretty shitty like dudes trying to navigate like the world, like something like After Hours 
is like so like owes so much to this just in terms of like it's dumb male character just yeah like, well i mean there's even a up. scene in after hours that's directly yes. modeled after the scene where uh it's when he's trying to get into the nightclub right and he's like well even yes. if you get past me there's another guard that's even stronger or another bouncer inside that's even stronger that's going to be right behind me so like they literally like allude to that in the in after hours um yeah i think that's really well said both you uh and jason i just like i think it's really important to note that like well first of all like one of the reasons why k is so annoying and um i read a bit of the book not enough but like this is this is immediately apparent from the first scene in the book even is that um he completely buys into the power structures that are leveled against him throughout the the movie right like he is totally beholden to other people's judgments of him uh he's desperate to escape those judgments but those judgments do exert an incredible amount of power over him i mean like you look at the first scene and um it's even more apparent in the book when you get the internal monologue but like the entire time the cops are like doing their gaslighting thing he is completely playing into their hands every step of the way because he's like oh like i want to like put on a a strong front to to let them know that i'm not going to take uh their shit lying down and then the next second he's like oh i'm gonna go like default to my landlord and she'll vouch for me or you know and so on and so forth and it's like the whole time he's like desperate for their approval he's like trying so hard to get these cops to approve of him or to to understand his character and it's like he doesn't even realize the power that he's ceding to them in the process um i think that like uh it's pretty clear that like there's a there's a religious element to this right like like you could say that that the whole like um k's persecution complex and the sort of like notion that everyone feels guilty that aaron alluded to is sort of like original sin right and it's just sort of like that's all the system needs is this idea that you're not good enough or that something's wrong with you um and that everybody else is different from you and you will cede all of the power you know it's like all they have to do is tell you that like everything you want is on the other side of that door and there's just this guard between you and the door. And uh, for some reason, they're not letting you in. And you'll spend your entire life trying to get in that door, right? And in the process, you'll do things like end up following somebody like Adolf Hitler, <laughs> right? Because because it's like um, they provide this sort of like template for understanding the world that gets you to become so hateful because you're so desperate for the approval of people who don't actually know more than you do. But you're so desperate to con- to escape the notion that nobody really knows what's going on, right? That, that there's sort of an absurdity that everybody's just sort of like what, guessing that you'll do anything yeah. to instead sort of like give up your freedom of choice for, um, to be told what to do. Um, and I think that like, that's a hundred percent something that cave falls victim to throughout this, because again, he, he has always felt like he's guilty for some reason, even though he doesn't know why. And he's just desperate to not feel guilty anymore. Well, and one of the, my favorite ways that the movie does that is just visually like, uh, Aaron, you were talking about the set design in this movie being like one of the reasons that people really remember it, how it just looks incredible is like, that is very clearly the, the intent there is to design like these incredible, impossible, impossibly architected spaces that appear to exist in real life. They're just like airplane hangars and cathedrals and shit. Like just the motion of like the way that the char- main character moves through this world being um, like the, the co- only constancy is like after he gets out of his apartment, nothing looks like the real world. Everything kind of looks like, you know, this like Bellatar's damnation. <laughs> I kept it, yeah, looking for so, uh, right? Mr. Pube or Puby. <laughs> oh, come on. 
No one uh, gets that reference. You're just now. <laughs> I mean, long-time listeners, but yes, thank you, Cody, for correcting yes. him. I wish you'd done it on Mike. Yeah, it, I'm it sorry. Is, it is Perry the Pube made Perry. an appearance. Perry yes. the Pube. Thank you. I'm so sorry to forget his name. <laughs> I'm taking down a timestamp so that I can get Cody Probably saying it like in that voice. Probably just like a crack in the film, and it's, you know. It's, nope. Uh, he's yeah. also in Pinocchio 964. Listen to my episode about How would that even get on one of those? You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, that was a good episode. You don't want to know, my man. Um, no, like it, I, I, I do want to focus on a little bit because it feels like we're missing something if we're not talking about it. Uh, we can tie it into the theme and everything, but just like how this movie straight up looks, it the choice to film in uh, black and white, obviously intentional as well. There's like that sort of like the irony of the simplicity of a limited palette of colors, obviously belied by the, the wide complexity of sort of the systems that he's working against, the constancy and monotony of the like lack of advice and sort of like directionlessness that he's given by every other character in the movie. Um, but also I just kept marveling at how the like spaces around him continue to change. It, they really put the, a fine point on it when I think it's as he's leaving the court or no, right as he's, I forget at, at what point there's a transition point where you see Perkins from out. He's uh, from inside of a building. You see him about to close a set of double doors and then it cuts immediately to another to him from behind closing the doors and they're six times as large as they were. He's in front of some gigantic industrial building or a cathedral or something with huge doors. Yep. And it's like this. Yeah, this this space is now even larger uh, to suit like that. I, that larger idea of he no matter where he goes he's constantly dogged and sort of like contained by this incredibly vast uh you know mapless space like you you get no sense of bearing or space um and i think that obviously is very well tied into the central narrative to the to the theme um i just like how once it's sort of let off the leash it never really comes back until we're at a quarry being blown up along with the rocks with two Cohen brothers characters passing the knife between each other yes. to kill him. That's, that's a wonderful scene. But I like, I loved how this movie looked and how it used its spaces and how it used the specific form of black and white to sort of like marry and ironically like uh, buttress those ideas of like this very simple thing. You're accused of a crime. You're under arrest. Wait your trial. And actually there's nothing like understandable or knowable about the system at all. And there never will be, you've already been sentenced to death. Just nobody's giving the answer. Basically. I, I just loved how that all sort of tied up at the end for me by watching and listening to it. Yeah. A lot of that. I, I don't, I don't want to call this movie like messy. Cause Wells is like one of the, you know, one of the best <laughs> directors, but there's like, he straight up just kind of like does not care about like typical, like, rules around like filmmaking and editing and whatnot here. Like, he just breaks the 180 degree rule, just like kind of nonstop, like three or four times right at the beginning of the yeah. film. Um, a lot of like weird editing stuff that I, I guess feels intentional to me. Like, I think it, I think it does add to like the, uh, yeah, Kafka-esque feel of the film, but like um, it, it is quite jarring. I think some of like the cuts and like jumps that he does for um, sure. Even if it's like, I think it's pretty obvious to tell what he's doing with that stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and like jarring and also like ostentatious, right? Like uh shout outs to Jason. He asked a good question yesterday when we saw Apachat Pongwe Rasatha cool at uh, the Walker. Um, he asked about the um, still frames in uh, those movies such as Boon Me. And, uh, 
Apachat Punk said that he really wanted to call attention to the artifice of the construction of the movie that like by putting still uh, frames in a in otherwise moving picture, he wanted to remind you that you were watching a movie and even to become aware of your body. Um, I felt very similarly when we would go from, say, like, uh, I think the maybe the most dramatic example is when he goes to visit the artist and then he opens up a like trap door basically in the artist's studio and it leads back to like the court filing system area but like throughout it feels like we are in like dark souls 2 or something right you can turn off your monitor if you'd like cody thank you <laughs> um where where it's it's just like doors don't lead to like the same geographic spaces right they're actually like portals to wherever orson wells wants them to go um it feels like he's inside like a single structure for like the entire second half of this movie. It's like maybe the courthouse. It's like maybe uh, the advocates like mansion. It's maybe all of those things or both of those things. And it, it creates this really like ostentatious disorienting effect um, that is sort of coupled with this notion that um, I really liked something about Anthony Perkins performance is that um, like Kay goes through wild personality shifts to match, right? Like that first scene when he, he's sort of like this very put upon guy it, at the beginning without a lot of agency of his own. And then all of a sudden in, when he opens up the door and he's in the courtroom, he's making this like to kill a mockingbird monologue about how he is being accused, right? Unfairly during his, tra- and I'm, I was like, who is this guy? Right. Um, but it happens all the time, especially with women. Right. Like he sort of immediately affects the personality that he thinks is going to get him the furthest where wherever he is. Um, I, I thought that like both of those things in coordination created this sort of like this very pointed and ostentatious disorientation where um, Orson Welles was very clearly like not only trying to sort of like suggest how somebody like Kay could be buffaloed by the system, but also just sort of like trying to put us in that headspace, trying to be like, hey, like, I am purposefully fucking with you with this movie. And like, it's supposed to get you to see things differently than you would see them normally. It's supposed to get you to sort of understand the, uh, the mechanics behind what I'm doing and the mechanics behind what this system is doing, right? The system that sort of like, arbitrarily gives you structure to follow, even though it's, it's leading you around in circles, right? Even though it's a mouse trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that. Even like the intro of the movie um, where with Wells sort of describing, he's sh- sharing that um, uh, the sort of parable that appears later in the book. And then at the very end, Wells, at least in the version I watched, Wells actually announces the name of the cast and says, this was based on a book by Franz Kafka. And that's a cool. Touch. My name is Orson. Well, it was, it was nice. That's um, him using his status as Orson Wells for good. Yeah. I feel. He's whipping you know it what out. I mean, I would he's like Steven Spielberg to do that. Yeah. It's like, uh, have yeah, you Steven seen Spielberg. the, um, the citizen Kane trailers where it's just like him literally being like, hi, I'm Orson Wells. I wrote this movie. I'm really proud of, uh, right. it's called like citizen a Kane. level. Yeah. It like, was really, I, it's hard to really imagine sick. anybody doing that now. Yes. <laughs> love that. I love that shit. Um, Cody, I always like, hearing your thoughts on form on stage on setting on visuals of a movie uh do you have anything before we head to one of our final segments of the show sure yeah as the the foremost scholar out of this foursome uh when it comes to uh studies in cinema and media culture courtesy of the university (laughs) of minnesota twin cities no i like y'all did a really good job characterizing this uh, kind of similar to like verbatim the 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 
couple like Aaron's opening thoughts about that of just like this film hits you with it right away and that 180 degree rule is broken like very early it's I mean either you do it then or you do it at some other like narratively significant moment but there is sort of a lot of sameness with like the rest of the movie and just like we're getting context through additional like conversations and each conversation is um, manifested differently just from those constantly evolving sets Um, if you've never if for whatever reason you're listening to this and haven't seen this movie and are a fan of like eternal sunshine it's like that stuff but like a lot better oh, yeah. and more than just like that one scene that everybody talks about from eternal sunshine but there's like a lot of that shit going on here which is super cool the um it's not technically like fisheye lens even though it, it sort of gives the impression that i'm thinking uh, again like the beginning of the film when we're in k's bedroom it's like a lot of non-cuts and a lot of K's, K's way over here in this corner. And then he walks to the opposite corner of the camera mm-hmm. and like, there's no, you're really, you're really uh, exploring, you're exploring the space. It made me feel, um, or I don't know, the first thing I thought of was a clockwork orange, the sort of like distorting the space without like really distorting the space, but we just like made sets to match the sort of tone that we're going for and letting that do a lot of the talking. And then we're just letting these elite physical performers, Anthony Perkins, chief among them, just like not again, not being afraid to uh, explore explore the environment and like distort just by just by moving around um it, it's like super efficient and and as everybody here has said like a really brilliant looking film as a result for real there's one shot near the i think it's near the end right after he gets into the cathedral where he sort of stumbles into the middle of a room i think maybe he's just come through a set of double doors but it like the doors are no longer there in the next shot um and there are like sort of hanging lamps around in this completely like i only saw the red shoes for the first time late last year but it reminded me of one of those scenes where it's just really wide shot and a lot of shit in the frame and you're clearly supposed to focus on one little part of it and these lamps just look three times as big as he is because of the framing of the shot and something that they did in like staging it and the focus makes it look like these are not just normal gigantic normal lamps they're like gigantic human-sized lamps i don't know some of that shit just sticks with me because it feels otherworldly in a way like harry was saying i'll you can do it again cody dark souls 2 bloodborne even parts of elden ring that are like the more sci-fi high fantasy shit are just like really they've infected the brains of almost everybody who does podcasts at this point um Except for Cody, of course. Uh, we have a couple final segments of this show, um, one of which I'm going to open up. It's called The Junk Drawer, uh, where we just share any random lingering thoughts, any fun stuff that happened in the movie that you want to talk about, uh, shy of specific shots, because we do have another segment for that. We've got a whole chest full of bits. Uh, mine is, um, he goes, he, like, Anthony Perkins starts this movie, as we call, Full Jimmy. Uh, I almost thought that I was watching a Jimmy Stewart performance. Um, Dude, until, oh my god, it's uncanny, right? It's, until Especially he becomes that like first scene, it's it's nuts. Until he becomes like hyper, uh, like super focused and serious. I don't know that I've seen Jimmy Stewart do that, like prolonged. I mean, in serious dramatic roles, yes, but not like without completely shattering and breaking. I feel like there's a thin line of Jimmy that just breaks eventually. And he's just unchained Uh, in this movie. Perkins seems to sustain that sense of full Jimmy for a long time, a long, long time, but it's a strong, strong flavor right at the beginning. Um, That was my junk drawer thought. I don't know who put their, their hand first, but Harry, Aaron got ideas. Aaron, your hand was up Uh, first. Go for it. Sure. I I will say it is like, uh, it's this is like a film of the like the influence of which seems like kind of hard to nail down because this is also an adaptation of of Kafka and like Kafka's maybe the most 
influential, like at least European writer of the 20th century. I'd, it'd be hard to name. You could probably name one or two others, but he's like up there, right? Um, I mean, Kafka, like, Kafka was like deeply indebted to Dostoevsky. So you could maybe Dostoevsky, make the argument that like by extension or by the transitive property, <laughs> Dostoevsky. I, 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 I think there's something that that is. It, it feels like it's more easy to be influenced by Kafka. Kafka's. Like I agree with that. To be honest, yeah. Bureaucracy. And yeah, whatnot. absolutely. Although I, I maybe like Dostoevsky better, but like I, it is like absurd. Like we have mentioned, like After Hours, right? We uh, we mentioned like the Coen Brothers, which like so much of the Coen Brothers shit is like directly like a serious man is like 100. percent You know, kind of like a Jewish. I guess even more Jewish take on like this, this kind of stuff. Right. Um, I think there's like a ton of like David Lynch uh, in, in, in here as well. Um, Tati we've talked about before, just like the influence of like, I don't know how much, I don't want to say it's like all this film because I don't know who the fuck knows. Maybe David Lynch never saw this film or whatever. Right. But like, it, it feels like there's a strain of like this film, which was like underappreciated for a large number of years in like a lot of stuff that you can see today um, is number one. Number two, I do have gripes with the ending. I don't know why the fuck Orson Welles changed this. It sucks. Uh, the ending of the film uh, is the, the two men carry him away and then they 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 have the knife that he's supposed to kill himself with. He refuses to. And then they throw dynamite at him and blow him up. It's like a Looney Tunes ass uh, scene. I don't know what's going on there. In the book, he just refuses to stab himself, and then the two men, like one of them, stabs him in the heart, and they both like look him in the eyes. He dies, and it, there's like a line where he says, "Like a dog." Uh, and there's like one final line about like the shame of the act, essentially. Uh, very good ending. Feels like something Orson Welles would direct. I don't know why he changed that. I honestly have absolutely no clue. I cannot justify it in my mind. I it think was it the just kind of sucks. I don't know. Maybe, it might be a strange yeah. love moment. Like he saw like some Tom and Jerry like the day before, and was like, "Yeah, all right." So, <laughs> Listen, I can know, have him die dynamite. by being crushed by a mallet hammer, or I can have him blow up with dynamite. Which, which do you guys think? Yeah, I, I just I don't get it. I do not get it. I, I did want to talk reason. about that. Um, it's like also a weirdly triumphant ending, right? Like I think that it's maybe my most generous reading of that ending is that I think we're kind of supposed to think that K has sort of transcended the system by the end in sort of a ironically triumphant way. Like, yes, he dies, but like he is able to sort of exert power over his executors where he's like, Hey, like you're going to have to like make the decision and live with the decision to kill me. Um, and they can't do it right. They have to sort of like sublimate that. And he's laughing about the fact that like he or they are like he used to be right where they couldn't even make their own decisions because they were too afraid of shame and judgment. And like he is free. Right. It's a, I agree. It's a weird ending. I, I would have rather have seen the knife ending um, and maybe seen the guys be sort of ashamed. But I think it's kind of supposed to be like a more triumphant ending than the original novel, which is a, a strange oh, you know thing. I can- I can, I can maybe, I'm reading an interview right now. <laughs> Literally just like, oh, let's actually fucking Google this. Uh, Wells said, yes, he is murdered in the end. He's murdered in our film. But because I fear that Kay may be taken to be a sort of every man by the audience, I have been bold enough to change the end to the extent that he doesn't surrender. He is murdered as anyone is murdered when they're executed. But where in the book he screams like a dog, in my version, he laughs in their faces because they're unable to kill him. Now, sorry, yeah. Wells. <laughs> well, not, I mean, not, so it, not good. Not not to sort of toot my own horn yeah. here, uh, but like that is what I was saying too, right? Is that like 
K sort of like becomes a man by the end of this movie, right? Like he's able to sort of stand up for himself and his yes. own interpretation of it's supposed life. to be this kind of whimper, you know, yeah, it's supposed triumph. to be this. Yeah. In the book. Yeah. I, oh yeah. No, I it's, it's supposed it. to be pathetic and bad in the book. And in, in it's this, pathetic. it's, it's, it's triumphant. Yes. Yeah. Like he, he it's the, it's the thing that has been threatened for X number of pages, X number of hours finally happening. And it's like, not this climax. It's like this, this kind of gross little thing. And now it's like a, if I see Orson Welles, it's, I'm it's on his sight. Ass. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, you know, look, he, 90% of it's, you know, quite good. So uh, I, I don't know. I kind of like this. ending. St- I, I kind of like, I think it's very Orson Welles to want a hero who is sort of like, yes, beyond authority. Um, I agree with you. I think that K is not that hero and shouldn't have been, but, I understand Orson Welles' sort of like commitment to wanting that, especially since he cast mm-hmm. himself. Actually, um, so, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, questioner, did you ever think about ending the film with the two executioners stabbing Kay with a knife? No, to me, that ending is a ballet written by a Jewish intellectual before the advent of Hitler. Kafka wouldn't have put that in hmm. after the death of six million Jews. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay, all right. Folks, we were right the entire time. <laughs> All of our takes yeah, listen to, validated like, wow, by man. Our takes are exactly right. We're fucking good at this, you guys. <laughs> Let no one say... Look, everybody makes jokes about us making fart sounds in the background and all that shit, but every once in a while, and we're we get it right. okay. We get uh, it right. <laughs> I have two drunk drawer thoughts. Um... I guess one, I uh, really like the use of that classical song. I think it's Adagio and G, maybe, uh, that's played throughout this. Um, that's really good. Uh, two, I really like that uh, Orson Welles made this like a little weird and gay. Um, really into the sort of queer implications when he's like, every accused man is so attractive. You know, when the when the advocate is like, because it's like it's like this this really perverse like he's attracted to them because of the opportunity they represent in the power struggle, right? It's like, oh, these are people who I can manipulate, who I can sort of you abuse and dominate existentially because by being accused and and their fear of um being accused, they can they're sort of like seeding their uh, self-identification to me and I can sort of like write that for them. And that is sort of like sexually dominating in a way that the advocate is like clearly getting off on. And I thought that that was like a really good sort of like, um, like update to the overt sexualization that is in the original text, right? Because like this, this text is super, super uh, crazy about women as all of Kafka's stuff is um, and the ways in which like, the the whole like everything about attraction and sexuality is like a power struggle <laughs> which is definitely present in this uh adaptation as well but i really like that like there's like a really good strong queer reading of that dynamic as well uh and it's so cynical and so orson wells but it's it's sort of uh really perfect for what he's doing here yeah nice to have it there uh then I will close the junk drawer and open up the good grief give me a gif drawer. Um any th- shots that you think should go out with the episode on Twitter. I uh mine is going to be um the uh, near the end when they're dragging him to the quarry to have him killed. Uh they walk right past the big monolithic statue which has been shrouded uh presumably resembling justice and acceptance of, you know, the uh, huddled masses kind of thing, but throughout the movie it's been shown a couple of times and it's covered in a, a drape. Um it is just a really nice shot. It holds I think almost the entire time when they just cross the horizon them, you know, dragging him unwillingly to to his death. Uh I found that like really 
nice to watch. I it can almost make a perfect loop of it. We'll see. Um, but uh, Cody, what did you think as far as things, shots that you loved enough from this movie to see it go out with it? Yeah, you had a pretty good pick. Mine is uh, takes place between, I think I had it marked down as 3931 to 3948. It's like not in a, I don't know, in a vacuum, it's not, or I, the opposite of in, in a vacuum. In like context with the rest of the film, it's not that like amazing looking it is it's um Kay's kind of like uh, monologue in the courtroom interrupted by the courtroom and the courtrooms or, or the courtroom guard and the courtroom guards wife there we go having like whatever it is that's going on and then she gets scooped up and they leave the room it's just mm-hmm. like a lot of the culmination of a lot of things that i will take away from this movie the mix of tonal juxtapositions the dreamlike lack of logic uh of it all the the scale of everything the fact that i think it the and the quick cutting as well like in between all those cuts there's cockeyed camera there's a lot of people in like very visible in the room there's just like a lot of things in rapid succession that uh that played uh i think favorably in this movie as well as that particular series of shots so that's that's my pick i liked that one quite a bit good one uh harry yeah, I've just got two. I only have timestamps for one of them. My first one is right around an hour, I believe. Um, it's just when he sees the advocate's other um, client, quote unquote, for the first time. He sort of like opens this door to this like little closet, and this dude is just like huddled inside there, sort of like whimpering and looking scared. Very David Lynch. Yeah, and then it yes. just like kind of cuts between the two of them, like looking at each other and, and having this sort of like little connection with one another. But it's like, oh, uh, and then immediately after that, um, the the advocate's um, mistress is like you shouldn't have opened that door which is really good um the second one is just uh when the mistress tries to get Kay's attention and breaks the mirror and he goes walking down this hall of mirrors and he can see himself in it until he gets to the one that she broke and she's standing behind it um so that instead of his reflection it's her um that's just like a really classic like fucking amazing shot and she goes I broke the mirror, which I really liked uh, as well. Um, So those are my two picks, I guess. Yeah, there are a lot of like Orson Welles greatest hits shots in this film involving mirror. My, my, mine is going to be, I don't have timestamps, but my shot is just the shot of him. I, this is like such a basic uh, answer here, but the, the playtime ass shot of him just walking through the bank and it's just like rows and rows of, of people at their desks. That's a good shot. That's a that's another that's, Orson Welles ass shot. Yeah, right there. one of the ones that's like just rows and rows of typewriters on desks, and it's like a yeah. like a fucking airplane hangar, just the biggest building you've ever yeah. seen in your life. It's nuts. It's crazy. How do you do? You think you ever sit at the wrong desk accidentally? You know, every single you just day. like sit one you know kitty corner over, and then you just you know it's got to be embarrassing. And then right? you're shot accused. Yeah. yeah, and then you get you get blown up by dynamite. Jacques. Uh, cool. Well, thanks guys. You'll see those go out with the episode because this time I actually did find the movie in a format that I can make gifts out of, unlike almost every other movie that we've done this for. Uh, but we have one final segment to our show. I need Harry's help, rather direction, uh, as Joseph K did not receive in this film, uh, to, uh, open it. Uh, for for the end of our episode. Thank you, Jason. This last segment, which I'm so glad has made its triumphant return, is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for that abstractly accusatory introduction. The film we've discussed today comes from a novel by Franz Kafka. Maybe you've heard of him. And so I figured it'd be worth exploring other famous film Franzes through a little something I like to call Franz like these. 
Uh, wow. I will, you have yeah. done yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do what I can. I missed a week. I got to try and make up for it uh, in bits and pieces. Uh, so hopefully we'll get there. I will, however, present some prompts relating to Franz's throughout cinema. After reading each prompt, I will ask y'all in reverse alphabetical by last name order to respond. So the order of Mac and Grossman Daphnis uh, for those keeping track at home. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. Let's jump in. Uh, we're going to start with, uh, you know, let's shout out Franz uh, Planer or Planer. I think this is the one that I'm least, uh, obviously least confident with. The president. P-L-A-N-E-R. We're going to go with Planer. Franz Planer. I did not plan very well for this uh, segment. Uh, he was an Austrian-born man, uh, this Franz, who served as the cinematographer for over 90 films, including multiple Audrey Hepburn projects. How tall was Audrey Hepburn, Harry? Jesus Christ. Every time no. it gets me. Um uh 5-8 i'm gonna go with 5-8 all right we're going with a 5-8 locked it in aaron over to you what do you think jesus i'm gonna be sandwiched here again god damn it um gotta go 5-6 all right 5-6 got it down and jason what you thinking i'm gonna go 5-9 a 5 yeah, Nine. I know. I, I I feel like there's I, irony in her right, maybe yeah. being taller than I think. I I don't know, and I'm pretty sure Cody has asked this specific just, one about this specific actress before. I'm not right, sure. Not, I checked. No, okay, it's tough because sure. uh, I, I remember you have a spreadsheet. I yes, remember Gregory Peck uh, like towering over her, but also I think Gregory Peck is quite tall. So Gregory we'll see. Peck yeah. is eight three. Yeah, he was the first center in the NBA, like <laughs> the first year yes. that the NBA was a thing. He was hooping. He He's in the NBA Hall of Fame. Yeah, dude, dude uh, humongous. Um, but is Audrey Hepburn humongous? Well, we'll find out in just a few seconds. Going off a few sources on the internet, Audrey Hepburn was reportedly five feet, seven inches. Damn it. Aaron being equidistant, they each get a point. Sorry, Jason. But everybody, we were nested pretty well on this. I should have covered the spread, yeah. <laughs> sure the spread of the three total what, the heights that anybody what? could be an unbounded yeah. five, integer six, what five, are you eight? talking about <laughs> <laughs> uh, nine million feet tall yeah. yeah i would like to i would like to guess the imaginary number i cody uh if we could just lock that in <laughs> yes uh, mm, i would like to give jokes. a limit that we're approaching her height was uh rapidly approaching five feet seven inches uh so yeah harry and aaron get a point still very much anybody's game so don't freak out don't freak out we're fine. Next, we're going to move to Franz Rogowski, who, going by Letterboxd, which is empirical and gospel and all that good stuff, he has 27 acting credits to his name. My question for you, how many, uh, we'll go just pure numbers, how many of those 27 acting credits have him, Franz Rogowski, playing a character also named Franz? Harry? Oh, I'm, I'm just going to go with the meme and say two, but it's weird that it's happened twice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sure. Yep. Yeah. Five to nickel. Yeah. Okay. Pretty good. Lock that in. Uh, Aries got two as his guess. Over to Aaron. How many times has Franz played Franz? If I go three, will Jason go one or four? I mean, that's the real, it's a great real question, math that I'm doing here. I feel like he'd mm. go one. I want to go one, but I'm going to go three. All right, Aaron is going three. And now, Jason, are you going to cover the spread or uh, go a different direction? 
Remind me, 27 acting credits listed on Letterboxd? 20, 27 acting credits. Come I'm going to say he was Franz in... Come on, man. Can I get any ancillary information about the time of like no, Hollywood? No, okay. absolutely not. Uh, good question. You one acting credits in which he was named Franz. All right, Jason what? is going 21. Uh, I'm just going to assume locking. that German people are always either Franz or like Hans. You know, that's a good point. That's a good point. I Yeah. It is a good point. Yeah, uh, will it pay off? Point. We'll find out in just a few seconds. Franz Rogowski plays a character named Franz in three of his 27 films. God damn it. Still weird that it happened three times. Uh, I'm not yeah. going to lie. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yep, so three. So Aaron is the sole possessor of the point. Well done, Aaron. Question. Um, good mm-hmm. stuff. It would have been really funny if 77.77 repeating, of course, uh, of Franz's credits were for playing a guy named Franz. <laughs> Uh, we are. However, he gets a name the, change yeah, two thirds yeah, yeah. of the way through one of the movies. <laughs> uh, I, I've legally changed my name to to Heimlich, and now he's only getting Heimlich roles. Now it's wild. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll do that someday. We're at question three, uh, so we better. You know, we better talk about uh, Edward Franz. Uh, and we always, you know, we talk about. Uh, I haven't done it yet this week. We always talk about how we're edging Nodi's answers on concrete slabs on top of a mountain somewhere. Uh, it's a, a dumb bit. And that happens actually, however, to be fitting here because Edward Franz's most letterboxed popular film he was in is 1956's The Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, in that movie, he plays a character named Jethro. My question for you, uh, what is the runtime or how long is the runtime, whatever is grammatically appropriate. I need more coffee. Uh, it's almost 4 PM. How long is the runtime for 1956's the 10 commandments, um, in, I don't know, minutes, hours and minutes, whatever you prefer, Harry. I'm going to go with 160 minutes. I think that bad boy's just shy of three hours. Alrighty. 160 minutes, locking Harry in, putting that on a concrete slab, et cetera, et cetera. Aaron, over to you. What is your guess for the 10 commandments runtime? I thought that bad boy was like four hours. Am I totally off? Now I'm thinking maybe it's only like three hours, which is, I mean, who cares at that point? Um, I'm going to go three hours and 20 minutes. Alrighty, three hours and 20 minutes, so 200, I'm just going to convert them all to minutes, uh, 200 minutes, uh, got the, which, yeah, I mean, still long. I'm not even 200 minutes, uh, remains to be seen. Jason, save me. What's your guess? I'm going to go exactly three hours, 180 minutes. going to cover 180 the minutes. Yeah. Covering the spread on that bad okay. boy. Um, will it pay off? Well, we're going to find out in a few seconds using letterbox as our guide, the 10 commandments comes in at 220 minutes long. Uh, and also, it also it also comes in at two concrete slabs because I think they fit all those on two concrete wow. slabs. But uh, 220 <laughs> minutes, uh, everybody undershot it. Aaron was closest, however, so he also gets the point for that question. A uh, quick look at the scoreboard tells us that Aaron is in the lead with three. Harry's uh, in second place with one point. Jason has yet to get on the board. Still very much anybody's game. I know you don't need me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway because I like saying it. Uh, For question four, still anybody's game, we're going to hit up the great composer, Franz Waxman. What I'm going to do is list the top five films going by Letterboxd Popularity wherein Waxman served as the composer. 
for the film. And what each of you will then do is form a guess as to how many of those five films earned Waxman uh, at least an Oscar nomination. We're not talking about wins, just at the very least, was he at least nominated for that film? So again, how many of the five uh, most popular probably films that Waxman worked on as composer, how many of those five got him at least an Oscar nomination? Uh, an Oscar nomination. Without further ado, his top five most popular films are as follows. We have Rear Window, got Sunset Belvedere, and that's an abbreviation for Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, Rebecca, The Bride of Frankenstein, and finally, previous episode, The Philadelphia Story. So once again, Rear Window, Sunset Boulevard, Rebecca, The Bride of Frankenstein, Philadelphia Story. So how many of those five films got Waxman an Oscar nomination, Harry? First of all, damn Waxman, that's quite a career. <laughs> well, well yeah. done. It must be said. Uh, bringing it home for the Franzes. Um, I'm going to say three. Uh, mm, yeah, I'm going to go three. All right, going with three. Uh, locking it in, Aaron. Over to you. What's your guess? It's kind of a shit move. I'm also going to go three. <laughs> all right, just seems like three. You know. Yeah, no, it's fair. Sometimes it seems like three. Uh, doesn't get said enough. Uh, over to Jason. Are you going to cover the spread? Or are you going to go in a different direction with this one? I'm really proud of Waxman. I'm going to say that he got nominations at least for all five of these movies. They're they're iconic oh, movies, right? Like Potential for all of us to get a point if it's four. Hey, I don't know if that's <laughs> true at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I would. Yeah, I would probably go okay. that route. Um, all right. Well, or no one, uh, you know. Yeah, or no one. Uh, I got, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm in, I'm in a point-giving mood, uh, but only if it's warranted. And will it be warranted in this case? We're going to find out in just a few seconds. So for his work in these five films, Franz Waxman was nominated for two Oscars. <sighs> two, he was nominated for Best Score for Rebecca and for Sunset Boulevard with him getting a win for the latter. So if I'm, if I'm beholden to my rules, does that mean that Harry and Aaron both get a point because they were I both so. closest? Okay. I'm just I'm getting nods from the people who are getting points. So <laughs> and Jason's yeah. giving a begrudging smile, which I yeah, okay. So uh all right. Well it should be uh, should be noted. Uh Jason still yet to get on the board. Uh still probably anybody's yeah, still anybody's game. Jason could still pull out the win, full disclosure. Uh Harry with two points. Aaron four for four. He's got four points in this game up to this point. Uh, as Jason pulls a thumbs up out of his jacket. Carefully he's got a thumbs up. Uh for this fifth and final question, we will remark upon the career of Dennis Franz. Uh one of the most notorious Franzes, maybe probably. Uh, he's perhaps more of a notable TV actor, NYPD Blue, uh, comes to mind, I believe. Uh, but he has dabbled in movies over the years. And what I'm going to do is list four films from Dennis Franz's Franzography. Um, what I'm going to do is ask each of y'all to rank them in order of highest to lowest actor credit, specifically for Dennis Franz. So like in what spot was he in the cast list for each of those movies, uh, according to Letterboxd, because again, it is gospel. So without further ado, those four films are as follows, just in order of release date. We have 1980's Popeye, directed by Robert Altman, 1981's Blowout, directed by Brian De Palma. We have 1983's Psycho 2, previous episode, kind of, directed by Richard Franklin. And finally, 1983's Scarface, also directed by Brian De Palma. So again, for those four films, we're putting them in the order of kind of what your perception is, uh, highest to lowest 
order of Dennis Franz's actor credit. So like can where I, he got slotted in that cast can list. Can I yeah, Google go a picture of Dennis Franz? Absolutely. Uh, what? I, yeah, I, okay. I can't trust I don't you. know. No, I don't I know can, what he fucking can, looks like, but that's who crazy. Who was he in Psycho 2? <laughs> was uh, he the diner first guy? Of, the, like the Greek-looking diner guy? Was he... Oh, come on. Uh, I listen, mean, don't here, tell I'm, me. I'm just expressing my confusion. I... I without me having seen the movie, it should be he's most famous for playing a cop in the things. Uh, NYPD Blue. I don't know if that holds true for Psycho too. I'm just kind of putting stuff out there. Uh, but again, put yeah, putting in them in order, perceived highest to lowest, slotting in the cast list. Uh, and for those listening who may not know what's going on, they're gonna put those in the aforementioned order. They're gonna get a point for every cl- correctly slotted film, which is why I said it's still you know anybody's game at this point. If they get the order perfectly correct, they get four points. If they split the difference, put two of them in the correct spots, then they'll get two points instead of four, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 1980s Popeye, 1981's Blowout, 1983's Psycho 2, 1983's Scarface. It all comes down to this, sports fans. Uh, Harry, how you doing? Do I need to vamp a little bit longer or do you oh, got man. an order um, I guess I can I can try. I haven't really. Okay. F- um, I'm going to go. Do or do not. There is um, no try, but go thank ahead. You. Uh, I'll do my top one for Psycho 2, um, I guess. Um, I think number two is going to be blowout for me. Um, number three is going to be, uh, Popeye and number four is going to be Scarface. Roger Dodger. Okay. So I'm going to read those back just to make sure I heard them and wrote them down correctly. What's so funny, Aaron? Say something. Yeah, you'll see. I've got, uh, psycho Two, blowout Popeye and Scarface. Did I transcribe those correctly? Yeah. Okay. Excelente. All right, locking those in. Over to Aaron for uh, Captain uh, Giggles over here. Sorry, uh, what what order you just, got? I was just laughing because I realized if I really wanted to cheap shot it, I could just copy Harry's answer exactly. Uh, however, uh, mine is very close to Harry's uh, with two differences, so I guess he could tie it up. Uh, I have I have a screenshot of my Notepad app that I have written this down on. If anybody would like uh, shitty proof, uh, but I'm going to go Psycho Two. Blowout Scarface Popeye. That is my gotcha. I, I, gotcha. I want I want to say he's the assassin in Blowout, but I'm not sure. I might I'm I, probably wrong. No, the assassin in Blowout's uh fucking what what's his name? The Shakespearean you know it. uh fucking uh No You know it. Yeah, uh, uh, listeners are screaming you know into the their, fuck I'm talking their about, devices. right? Cody, do you actually know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course I do. Tall I'm not- uh, fucking Frankenstein-looking motherfucker. Welcome to Boris Karlov. Such a no, okay, Carol, no, Carol no. what's his name from uh, Twin Peaks? I'm, I'm just gonna Google it now. I just gave it. I just gave I already answered. Answer. Uh, in, in the in, in the meantime, um, just to read those back. So, uh, Psycho Two, Blowout, Scarface, and Popeye. Yeah, Jonathan Lithgow. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna assume wow, I read actually those do correctly. feel super stupid that I forgot that. Oh well. Yeah. Uh, and over to Jason. Jason, what are your pickies? What do you say that Scarface number one? Psycho 2, number 2, Popeye, number 3, Blowout, number 4. Roger, Dodger. So read those back. I've got Scarface, Psycho 2, Popeye, and Blowout. Correct. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, we've got all of those locked in. Just to get ahead of it, I'll say thank you. These have been fronds like these. I will now read the correct order of these films from highest to lowest, Franz credit, Kicking it off with uh, Dennis Franz being fourth build 
in Brian De Palma's blowout. That uh, that is the first one. Again, fourth build coming in hot. Just behind at fifth build is Psycho Two. Dennis Franz in Psycho Two. Uh, hot oh, on no. the heels of hot on the heels of that uh, coming in at twenty eighth build. Dennis Franz in Popeye in the oh like, no assume early stages of his career. And then finally, um, Scarface. He was I think technically uncredited, but he was listed sixty third on Letterboxd. Jesus, um, a, a favor so from his he buddy was the Greek looking diner That's guy right. in Psycho Two. Yeah. I should have gone <laughs> with my gut. So, but uh, all the thing is that there are like five characters in Psycho too, <laughs> so that there was are. the reason. Right. Guess, yeah. Yes. So uh, where where we're at, um, we'll start from the bottom and work my way up. Jason did get on the board. He pulled out two points uh, in that Let's in that Jason. last round. So, yeah, got him two for the game. Uh, I'll start from the bottom, going into the the last round. So Harry had two points. He pulled out two points in that last round, which puts him at four. And then Aaron was four for four, and then zero for four in that last round. So he also ends <laughs> with oh, four. Or, uh, a co-victory, I guess, a bigger platform for the poppings we'll off. Yeah. No, yeah, you know, do I, honestly, I have to seed the floor a little bit because, as Aaron noted, if he had just copied mine, he would be victorious. Um, but he wanted to cover the spread. Would that so have been speak. honorable? <laughs> right, no, exactly. that would not so, have been honorable. It's, it's a gentleman's tie. It's an honor to tie with you, sir. Uh, I, just this, I agree. just this one time you're the going down next point week. is that jason gets last i think we as can always all agree. yeah i think that is, is the most important thing we need to figure not out not an egg not an egg this time not as kind of that complete zero i mean not this the egg 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 or <laughs> in regard to your number of wins though yeah somehow <laughs> somehow i have been allergic to any form of like not just victory but earning anything in this game lately and i'm i'm just, yeah. ha- just happy to be included this i think time, right? i think we should rebrand the goose egg as being emperor of the north pole uh, maybe it's so, golf rules. You know what I mean? Right, right exactly. Hmm. Maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it winning is. Cody's noties is like the lottery. You know what I mean? Like the short story. And Many it's just are saying Harry this. and I are going to be taken out back to be fucking shot. And you're the only <laughs> right. one remaining. I, I think that I'm just going to have both of my legs broken, like in Fallout New Vegas. You can turn off your monitor if you want, Cody, but I'm done. Many are saying this, and only one is saying this. Thank you so much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast. We're so pleased that you could join us for this episode. Um, you can check out this movie on the Internet Archive. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And also, there are a number of reservations going around. If it's not playing... Uh, in Minneapolis anymore. Check out where it's playing near you or find another way to watch it. It's a pretty good movie. Uh, check it out. If Aaron has sold you on the book, go check out the book too. I suppose there's a book upon which this is based. Uh, but in the meantime, check out our episode on After Hours. I think it was like 75 or so. We dropped name dropped that episode. We had name dropped Emperor of the North Pole recent episode as well. Check our feed for other episodes based on movies that you like because we go a little bit further, a little bit different than a lot of other podcasts might do because we just don't have sponsorship or any sort of expectations. Uh, you can find us on twitter at trial of podcast find the trial on at trial on cinema and at trialon.org you can find me jason daphnis on twitter at nintendoofus i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh now you can go thank you cody wow i get my ass i was just really excited to shout out psycho 2 because like cody noted uh-huh. um we sort of did an episode on that for the horrorthon it was the first movie that played at the horrorthon that we covered um that's also a very good movie and it's an anthony perkins movie um so if if you're a big fan of the stylings of old ap not adrian peterson but uh anthony perkins then um you can check out both the trial and psycho 2 
I, uh, I, my name's Aaron. Uh, I also agree. Perkins, great actor. Maybe the best actor at playing a character who is completely dry but seems completely drenched in sweat. Uh, very my good. boy is liquid, uh, yeah. My man is yes. unctuous. He has a real unctuous vibe. He, he is, he is uh, just constantly embarrassed at something, uh, which is a good vibe, you know, for certain characters. You can find me on Twitter with other similar stupid observations at Harvey, please. No one else but you could ever have obtained admittance. No one else could enter this door. This door was intended only for you. And now, I'm going to close it.